Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian Clancy, and I am delighted to welcome you to the Abbey Theatre for one night only. You're going to hear the second half of our annual Grand Slam Championship, which took place on November the 18th in the Abbey Theatre with a sold-out capacity crowd. It was bonkers. An absolutely magical night for all. Um, if you haven't caught the first half of the show, you can go back and still listen to it. It should be up on your feed, just a Grand Slam Part 1. But for now, all I'll do is ask you to uh, quickly, if you don't mind, take your seats. I hope you've used the facilities. Maybe turn off the mobile phones as we welcome back on stage our host for the evening, Mr. Colm O'Regan. Now... Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for our first storyteller of the second half? We're all in the room. We're fully here. Excellent. Good. So, ladies and gentlemen, give a huge welcome to storyteller number five, Mr. Mark Kahn, ladies and gentlemen. It had been a long time coming for Deirdre more than for me, but we were finally leaving London and moving to Ireland. Truth be told, I would have probably stayed in London. It's a great city, you know, there's great restaurants, there's great culture, and it's full of warm, friendly people with, with <laughs> me all right, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> well, the truth of it was that the, the sort of unfriendliness, the impersonality of the city was the thing that didn't suit Deirdre. I mean, bless her, she was on a sort of one woman mission to cheer the place up. She was, she was customer of the day in our local coffee shop every day. <laughs> you know, all, all she did was go in and smile and ask the staff how they were. You know, it, was, it was obvious to me that you know, she was never going to be happy in London. And as I was the one that persuaded her to stay, I had to listen to her. She wanted to go home. And home meant Ireland. It meant Irish people. And it meant it in a way that I didn't really understand because I never felt that connection to my own country. And I thought home was just a place that you lived. Well, I was gonna get a chance to find out because we were moving from a little place in Northwest London to a slightly bigger place in County Wexford uh, with a little bit of land where we were gonna grow some veg and where we'd fall asleep hearing cows mooing instead of police sirens blaring. And I remember the first night we arrived finding Deirdre in, in the field and she's walking around and she's weeping 
you know, and she's saying, this is it, this is home, this is what I'd always dreamed of. And I remember thinking, you know, being so happy and thinking, well, this is, this is, I'm so glad we made the move, you know, the good times are coming. And, but as anybody that's ever moved knows, you know, it's a pain in the hole. And um, <laughs> our move was complicated by the fact that most of our stuff was in Belfast because we tried to move earlier in the year and the move had fallen through on the day we were supposed to move which had meant that most of our stuff had to be rerouted to a mum's house in Belfast. So the next day, we get up very bright and early, and we drive up to Belfast, sort of a three-hour journey, and we arrive, and one of her brothers gives me an, um, an address. It's somebody that he works with who's got a van he's going to lend us, and it's going to transport all the stuff down. So I, I head over to this, this address, and I remember as I arrived, the guy was underneath a car fixing it at the time, and he gets out. It must have taken this guy about half an hour to stand up. It, it, it was like a basketball player on stilts. You know, it was huge. He was ripped, full of muscles, full of tats, all that. And I, I introduced myself nervously, and um, it, he said to me, he never told me you were a Brit. <laughs> really? He left that out, did he? Well, that was, that was remiss of him. And... Uh, so, so he's showing me around the van. It's perfect for us. It's this big white Mercedes Sprinter van. There's loads of room in the back. There's big double doors at the back to get stuff in and out of. It's just what we need. He has two stipulations. One that we take care of it, and the other one that he needs it back in two days' time because he has a wee job to do for some fellas. <laughs> he says, don't tell me anything more, please. I don't want to know. I guarantee him his van will be back in perfect working order in two days. And then we head over to our mum's house, and we fill up the van with all the stuff that a poor mum has been living with for like six months or so. And the, the poor lady had been like some sort of acrobatic parkour granny clambering over boxes just to make herself a cup of tea in the morning. And we load up the van, it's filled right up to the top and right to the back, and then we drive down to, to Wexford, and it's sort of four hours through the traffic, and we arrive and we unload everything, and we're completely knackered. And then I, I notice there's a smell from the back field, and, and it's the septic tank. And, uh, and, like, in the city, you know, you, you, you flush the toilet, that's it. Well, in the country, you know, you're supposed to take care of it yourself a bit more. So I, I, I take the lid off this thing, and, well, I'll spare you the details. But um, the, the two things that I know is I don't know how to fix this, and I've just arrived, so that shit ain't mine. <laughs> so, so in the morning, I'm on the phone, and I'm calling somebody about it, and he, he comes at the end, he, he makes an arrangement to come at the end of the day. And then the plan is that we'll use the van make the most of the day and we go shopping for fridges, freezers and all that kind of stuff we don't have and then Deirdre insists that we go to the worst place in the world which all the blokes will mean, know I'll mean Ikea in Dublin and we spend the day there bickering because that's what you do and then suddenly we've got a van full of stuff filled right to the top and right to the back and we had back down through the traffic because I don't want to be late for the septic tank guy, I'm driving like white van man and eventually we arrive and uh, he's just leaving and I think he's going to be so angry with me because that's my London head, but he's actually really nice. He's really easygoing. He said, don't worry about it. And between the two of us, we sort out the septic tank, but I'm now covered in somebody else's... I'll spare you the details. And anyway, so we still have to unpack, unload all the vans, so we start doing that. We're unloading all the vans, and it's just, you know, it's knackering work, and, and it's getting dark, and we've not eaten... Well, we shared a drifter between the two of us the whole day. It's just, you know, it's exhausting. And we get most of the way through all this unloading, and... Um, there's just like one big thing left. It's like, or a couple of things left. And one of them is like the big Billy bookcase type thing. And Deirdre says, look, let's leave it. We're exhausted. And in the morning you get up and 
go up the lane, introduce yourself to one of the farmers that lives nearby, and he can give you a hand lifting this out. And I said, look, I, and this van needs to be back in Belfast tomorrow because I like my kneecaps where they are. And, <laughs> and, and so let's, we'll just get it done. And so we, we try to lift it out, and it's heavy, and I shouldn't have done it because as she's getting out of the van, she slips and falls. And it could have been bad. You know, she could have broken an ankle. She could, it could have fallen on top of her. We're, we're lucky. Um, and I pick her up and check she's okay, but she's furious with me. She just starts screaming abuse at me, and she's, she says, you know, you did that on purpose. You're trying to hurt me. You never wanted to come here, so why don't you just feck off back to London? So I know she's not normally like this, so I just like, sort of give her some space, and I go inside to sort of let her calm down. And, and I get inside, and I take off these ship-covered jeans, and I, I, I just feel suddenly very alone. I realize that I'm in the country, and I don't really know what I'm doing. I can't fix septic tanks. I don't know anybody around here. Maybe this has been a huge mistake. You know, maybe we're not even right for each other. And you know, I'm having all these things going through my head, and I hear this noise. Doof, doof, doof. Mark, Mark, come quick, come quick. So I run outside, and I, get, I see what's happened. She's got back in the van to clear the last bits of Ikea stuff out, and the doors have closed on her. So she's trapped in the back of the van. So I run over and I open the doors, and I jump in, and the first thing she says to me is, what took you so long? Why do you always make me wait so long? Now, I said that she gave me a lot of abuse before, but this was my turn. All my insecurities, all my fears, everything came pouring out of me. I said some ugly things, and things I'm not proud of. And, you know, inside every sort of adult male is a two-year-old toddler waiting to get out. And I sort of had a bit of a tantrum, and I jumped up in the air, and I landed on the ground, and the doors closed on both of us. <laughs> so now we're both stuck in the back of a van in the middle of the country, in the pitch black. And, you know, they don't tell you about that in the brochure. You know, you move to the country, it, when it's dark, you can't see your hand in front of your, head, in front of your face. And it's Deirdre's worst nightmare. She's kind of claustrophobic. She won't get in a lift, you know, so she is freaking out. Uh, she's down on her knees. She's actually praying to saints I've never even heard of. <laughs> so I, I grab her hand and I say, look, I promise you, we'll get out of here. We're going to be okay. It'll be all right. But in my head, I'm thinking, what if we're not? You know, what if we starve to death in the back of a German van, me and my boxer shorts? What will my parents think? And I don't know how long we're in there. It might have been a minute. It might have been five minutes. But eventually, I find my way to the back and feel the way along the back of the van. And there's a latch that opens from the inside. It's German engineering. There's got to be a way out. <laughs> and we emerge into the Irish night a bit relieved and laughing at ourselves and apologizing to each other. And here we are sort of five years down the line. And you know we have veg growing in the back. And we're happy, mostly. You know, And uh, she was right. She was 100% right. You know, some places don't suit some people. You know, if you're the kind of person that likes to chat to people, strangers even, you know, just for the enjoyment of chatting, like she does and like I'm learning to, then, then maybe London isn't the city for you. And she talked about shoulders dropping down her back after she'd been home for a few days, the tension of the city leaving her. And I felt that too. It took a few months, but, but I felt it too. And that's because I feel at home here more than I ever even did in my own country. So I want to say thank you to you, and I want to say thank you to you. Mark Khan. Look at you, an Irish audience, feeling all warm about yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 
so bad the place actually isn't, fair enough, you know. And since Brexit, you're stuck here anyway, Mark, so. <laughs> Let us go to our second storyteller of the second half, our sixth overall. Welcome to the stage, Lolly Mancy O'Brien. When I put my hands around your neck and squeeze so that you can't breathe anymore, you're gonna know that you're mine. This was the first guy I talked to on Tinder. <laughs> it's an online dating app, if you don't know. Um, six months before, my 17-year relationship and marriage had ended cataclysmically when I caught my husband with my best friend. So... <laughs> My friends, six months later, were saying, you have to get out there, and I'm saying, are you insane? I'm raw, broken, just in pieces, absolutely not. But I did upload the Tinder app anyway. But I didn't have the courage to put myself on it. Um, I put myself under a pseudonym, Lily, kind of close to Lolly, um, and I put a photograph or a picture of a cloud rather than a profile picture. And what I was amazed to find was, in within a couple of hours, this little sort of flame app of Tinder was binging on my phone, and I was getting matches. And I got excited, a surge of excitement. And I suddenly thought, could I actually still be desirable in this completely broken down state? Well, then I remembered they're only swiping on Lily the Cloud, so it's nothing personal. <laughs> and it took me another three months of hiding behind that cloud to actually get the courage to put myself up there as Lolly with a picture of myself. The first match I had was the cowboy. He was from Montana. He was raised with horses. Um, he was also of heritage Apache Indian, so both cowboy and Indian. Um, and um, one of the first things, I he was coming to Dublin on business, one of the first things I said to him was, if I was to run across a field, could you lasso me? <laughs> In a heartbeat was his response, and I knew I had to meet this guy. <laughs> So he was coming the following week, and I said to him, well, you know, let's make a plan. Um, uh, I think I have seen far too much um, uh, of the Lone Ranger, but I'm going to ask you to track me. And I'm going to be at these coordinates uh, in a place that's got no discernible features outside the Vintage Cocktail Club in Temple Bar, just a black door. Um, and I'm going to be there between 9 and 9.15 on Tuesday. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. So um, I was new to this stuff, so I was enjoying myself. Um, and um, he said, um, I'll be there. So, five to nine on that night, and I was terrified. Um, he, he messages me, and he says, you better be there. And I said, oh, I'm there. <laughs> and then he sends me another one and says, when I walk in through the door, whereabouts are you? And just as I wrote to the right and press send, he walked through the door. But he didn't just walk through the door. He throng, flung the door open, walked directly towards me. He was wearing an Armani suit. He smelled good. He was very handsome. He walked towards me. He grabbed my face without saying a word in his hands and kissed me <laughs> deeply. My knees buckled, and I actually don't know what we said or did for the rest of the evening. It was about two, one or two hours past. And then I felt compelled to say to him, I haven't had sex in two years. <laughs> and he said, well, lolly, lolly. And at the time, he was rubbing his hand up and down my arm, and it felt like fire. And I was kind of lost in his eyes. And he said, my driver's outside. It's sex in the city, you know. And uh, he can take you to wherever you need to go. But I'm going to my suite at the Shelvin. Oh, I'm coming, I said. <laughs> and that really is that. And I was back in the saddle. So. 
With this newfound enthusiasm for life that I suddenly had, I decided to go back onto Tinder, and I matched with a guy that was also coming to Dublin on business. I like the way they could come and go quickly, you know. So um, he was coming to Dublin on business, and he was coming from Kuwait, but he was a Greek basketball coach, very, very tall, six foot five, and kind of sexy. Um, but his written English wasn't so good, so he used to send me these voicemail messages and, you know, just record them on WhatsApp and just send them over. We'd moved from Tinder at that point. Um, and so he would send me these messages, and one of them was on his way home from work, and he said, Oh, Lolly. Now, he sounded a bit like Borat, but I can't really do the right accent, so sorry. But, oh, Lolly, I can't wait to meet you. Oh, my God, you know, you're so fantastic. I can't wait to see you. I'm really thinking about you. I'm leaving work now. I'm getting in my car. I'm driving, driving down the highway in Kuwait, Lolly. I'm thinking about you. You're so sexy. And, oh, my God, I'm touching myself, and I'm hard, and I'm driving, and boom! He rear-ended the car in front of him. <laughs> with his Mickey in his hand. Now, I don't know what you know about chaos theory, but it's kind of the idea that a butterfly can flap its wings in Honduras and it'll affect a storm in Ireland. My sexiness had caused a car crash in Kuwait. <laughs> chaos theory also tells us that everything is connected and little things can have big consequences, unintended consequences. So when the next guy that I started talking to said, have we met? And I said, I don't think so, but you're peering at a very small picture. And he said, did you still live in strawberry beds? And I'm like, I did. And he said, we met at a party years ago. Oh God, you were hot. I was like, were? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are, he said, let's date. So we, we met for a date. Uh, he was a fireman. So we'll call him the fireman. And we went for a date and we went on a picnic. And I liked his big, strong arms. I know I'm a feminist, but I still like that stuff. And um, I liked the fact that his big hands were holding these tiny little glasses that I brought with elderflower presse. And I liked the fact that we were talking a lot. And he felt kind of safe. And he said, there's limitations to dating me. I can't go more than five kilometers from the fire station. Now, I'd had a husband. I'd know where the hell he was any of the time. So this really appealed to me. <laughs> And date number one became eight. <laughs> but after date number eight, I knew I had to let him go. And I had to let him go because I started getting a stream of questions. And one of those questions were, were you out last night? And I was, I was at culture night, randomly. And he said, um, who were you with? Did you have fun? And then they just came thick and fast. Were you with friends? Did you stay in a hotel? Why haven't you texted me back? And all the anxiety of my marriage and all that imploding really came back to me. And I said, I can't do this with you. And he said, nice guys finish last. But I don't agree. And the reason I don't agree is something to do with the way that I'd seen people on Tinder. I thought they fell into one of four categories. The categories of the lonely, the kinky, the married, there's a lot of them, and then the newly single. And I'd also kind of not only put these people into boxes and categories, but I'd also given them nicknames. I mean, there was the strangler, he was bad. The cowboy, he was good. <laughs> Borat, he was kind of ugly, you know, but listen, we all have that bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We all have a story to tell inside of us, and we are much more than the sum of our parts. So I stand here, stage in the Abbey Theatre, to say thank you, because these guys are here tonight. <laughs> I want to 
want to thank you, Brian, for the laughs. You've become my best friend. And Mick, you are like my divorce guru, and you're in my heart forever. And some of you, thank you for the orgasms. <laughs> but if we go back to chaos theory, right, this idea that little things make big differences, actually, I thought I didn't need these hero or big strong arms to save me. I didn't need any of that. I saved myself after my marriage. I rode in on my own white charger and saved myself. But actually, when I was writing this story, I realized that wasn't true. You guys saved me, and all of you, and all of my friends. And the reason for that is it takes a village, and my village was tender. <laughs> And for those of you that would like to know if there's a happy ending, there's no happy endings. But quite recently, there was a new beginning. But that's another story. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, that's restored my faith in Tinder, I guess. I don't know. I, uh, I feel, it's weird, I, uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how it works, but I met my wife on the internet in 2006, which is 12 years ago in internet terms, is like we might as well have exchanged telegrams. Uh, we, it, was so, it was so long ago, you couldn't send mobile numbers to each other unless you'd signed up for the paid site. So we'd send each other our mobile numbers by spelling it out, otherwise they'd strip out the message. That's, that's the old days, the good old days. And I remember in my day, internet dating. Oh, sure, we had to get on a horse, you know. Uh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Lolly Mancy O'Brien. Everybody else now swiping like mad. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's great. Okay, <clears throat> let us go to our next storyteller, uh, the penultimate of the night and also the second last. So, uh, welcome to the stage. Give a huge round of applause to Sam Ford. (laughs) 
Um, so the, the best Christmas present I ever received was a very large piece of cardboard. Um, my generous benefactors are in the audience here tonight. Uh, I was eight years old, and uh, the reason it was the best present was that be uh, I had uh, quite a, a range of uh, die-cast buses and other things like this. Uh, so I had this uh, bit of cardboard, and I created this uh, utopian city uh, in cardboard using masking tape, different colored pens, uh, and uh, the imagination that only a very strange, only child can have. Um, so uh, it, the, the city was called Tripona, and it was very utopian. It had so many bus lanes and cycle lanes. There was a river, there was a beach, there was an airport. Um, I went to an Educate Together school, so there was a mosque, a synagogue, and a church. Um, this might str sound strange for a utopian city, but right in the middle of the city, there was a huge police station. It was vast, and the police had massive resources. And the reason was, um, well, I had a lot of police car, you know, figurines. Uh, that was one. And then also, I realized that it's actually really boring to operate a perfect city from above. Uh, it's just like, oh, yeah, the bus is doing real well, as usual. Uh, you know, going through that bus-only street that I created. This is boring. So... Tripona was the perfect city in cardboard, except for all the bloody terrorist attacks uh, and supervillains and so on. So, you know, everything would be chugging along, the nine would be going down Copernicus Road, having a great time. Everyone was, you know, going to the mosque or whatever. Um, but sadly, some, you know, like, and they were British terrorists. <laughs> I remember writing, like, newspaper articles, you know, you know, recounting how the police had thankfully put an end to this. Uh, anyway, you know, you'd have the police helicopter and everything was great. And it, it always worked out in the end. And everyone was very happy in this town. Um, so then I sort of uh, took my father's ordnance survey map of Dublin and started to deface that with the same markers. And I created a Dublin underground. I was very angry when I went to London to discover that they had this and we didn't. I thought it was a conspiracy as well. Do you remember, you know, there's the Thomas More statue near Trinity? And there, there used to be a public toilet underneath it. Anyone, like, remember that? Yeah. Uh, so one day, I was convinced my parents were, like, lying to me and that there was a Dublin Underground because I'd seen this passing in a car. So I, I walked into town to investigate for myself and went down, and it was just an old man at the urinal. <laughs> so anyway, there is no Dublin Underground, so I decided to create one. Uh, uh, and then I also, uh, on this this map of Dublin created another M50 outside the M50, so vast chunks of Louth, Meath, Kildare, uh, you know, didn't care about the farmers. Uh, compulsory purchase orders galore. Uh, but hey, I got things done. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, then I decided to branch out from the realm of theory and I, I um, started up my own limited company called Superbus Broadstone Incorporated. Um, and I started uh, cycling around my area, Dublin 7, Broadstone, pretending to be a bus. Uh, so I did have friends, I swear. Uh, and I played with them on some days, but every other day I'd cycle around, I'd have an A4 sheet of paper with like 25C written on the front. And the 25C, as well as I know, goes from St. Lawrence's Place to Vincent Street North via Shamrock Street and Royal Canal Bank. 
uh, and it's about an 11 minute journey and I'd stop at the, the, you know, the parking signs and I'd you know, imagine like, in my head like looking in the rear view CCTV like 10 people getting on, 7 people getting off and I'd go beep beep beep, you know, safety for the blind educate together again um, so you know, this was great there were 98 routes, right? 98, that's a lot um, and then I remember one day being in my room and I had this whole boardroom like fracas where I imagined uh, like I was the like benevolent CEO and the evil like Fianna Fáil minister for transport was, you know, up my ass being like the 4C is not profitable. We need to cut the 4C. I'd be like, all right, you can have the 4C, but you can't have the 17X. Anyway, uh, Fast forward to March 2018, this year, and I'm sitting in uh, Revenue in O'Connell Street trying to explain to a woman called Maraid that I am not, in fact, the CEO of Dublin Bus. I filled out the tax form wrong. <laughs> so how did that happen? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, am act I do actually work for Dublin Bus. Uh, I'm a tour guide. I give live German tours of Dublin. Uh, not even that regularly, seven times between March and September this year. <laughs> but I was trying to be honest, I was trying to fill out my tax form and I'd never done this before because I was PRSI before. Uh, so I put in, you know, like, it was like company name and I was like, well, you know, Dublin Bus, obviously. Uh, and what I accidentally did was registered as the director of Dublin Bus. <laughs> So I went into Maraid and I was like, I'm not the director of Dublin Bus. She's like, well, you know, that's what we have on the file here. That's what you put down. Why did you put it down if that's not what you are? I was like, Maraid, literally, Dublin Bus is like, you just get, go out of the door. We're on Cathedral Street. We cross the road. Come in with me, like, look at me, Maraid. I am not the CEO of Dublin Bus. Anyway, so... I do like three laps a day, like all summer, you know, for Dublin Bus. I was working for Viking Splash. I was working for Excursions Ireland, Pat Liddy walking tours, the Little Museum of Dublin, the James Joyce Centre. Uh, I had so many jobs, I, I, I don't know how I'm alive. I'm very pale. Look at this hair. Look at this frazzled, this bug eyes. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, at a certain point, anyway, I kept telling the tourists, like, oh, look, there's the mansion house. Uh, you know, come back in 10 years and I'll be the mayor of this town and I'll have fixed everything. And the more I told that joke, the more I was like, this is not a joke. <laughs> and then I applied to University College London to do a master's in urban studies. It is a mix of architecture, geography, uh, what else is in there? Uh, anthropology. Um, it's just, there's so many things. It's... <laughs> the broadest thing you'd ever do. We study like sewers, grime music, buses, anything that's even vaguely to do with the city. They're like, oh, we'll put that in. Um, so that's what I've been doing now and I'm a quarter way through it. And, you know, it's interesting that these sort of weird childhood obsessions have just come full circle. And thank you so much for listening to that. <laughs> Cheers. With a surname like Ford, there was only really one area he was going to end up working in. Uh, Sam Ford, ladies and gentlemen. That was great. I, I 
do wonder if we've witnessed history here tonight and then when he is carving a 200-metre-wide path through Meath uh, using... <laughs> Uh, what, was it, what was the phrase I think we've, uh, we've never heard here before? Compulsory purchase orders. <laughs> what a go, was it? Galore. Compulsory purchase orders galore. Uh, we always try to record the first ever known instance of a phrase at Dublin Story Slam. Thank you for the organs was one. And uh, <laughs> compulsory purchase orders galore. Uh, that is ne- that's a Venn diagram you will not see at any other show. <laughs> Let us go to our final storyteller of the night. Uh, a huge welcome. Uh, she is our last storyteller. Wait to the, wait the end. Welcome to stage, Sophie Musley, ladies and gentlemen. The day had started with a notification that my NCT was due for the car. And um, for a bit of context, I have a love-hate relationship with this car. It's a great car because um, I work as a coach and my job takes me all over the country. I carry to Derry, Garasivine to Dungarvan. I've been everywhere. The mileage on the car the last time we checked was 280,000 kilometers. So it's a great car. It's never let me down. But uh, the hate part is that it requires care. Like stuff like oil and and water for the windscreens and... What the fuck is a timing belt? <laughs> you know, like, I, I should just put petrol and move. That, that's enough. I pay for your petrol. That, you shouldn't ask for anything more. So I, I checked the beleaguered car, and uh, the last time I had checked the tires was probably seven months prior. And sure enough, the tires needed changing. And uh, in my head, I, I knew the process leading to that. You know, you go to a mechanic, you tell him I need new tires, you walk to the nearest ATM, you get the money, you walk back, you pay the mechanic, and um, once, you, once you do that, you, you, you know, drive away with the car. And this is something I do with my clients you know, when I'm coaching, when I'm helping people see the light of day. I get them to see, you know, what are the steps involved in this process? How does this work? And it makes it easier, and then I bring joy and love to their lives. <laughs> Except that, that's what would happen on a good day. I I was not having a good day. I was having what I call a bad day. Uh, And my bad days are days when my secret battle with depression takes hold of me. Uh, These are days when I wake up and the lights have gone off in my world and I I can't see any light. And usually they're cyclical. You go in one cycle, you come out, and they usually last between a week to 10 days. This one was particularly bad because I was in it for six weeks at that point, and it wasn't getting any better. And I sat in the car and cried for 60 minutes because I knew that I just couldn't face driving to the mechanic. It was just way too much. I just couldn't. The, The energy required for me to do that was beyond what was humanly capable uh, to ask of me. You may as well have asked me to climb Mount Everest. Um, And after crying for an hour, I realized, okay, we need to hit the Control-Alt-Delete buttons now. Something needs to change because I'm going to cry for the rest of the day if I stay where I am. So I thought, okay, I need to do something different. What can I do? So I, you know, the the anonymity of the internet was fantastic. I picked up the phone. I googled depression helplines. And I rang the first one, and uh, that was a very quick, very, very short and sweet conversation because she said to me, the woman on the line said to me, you know, if only you can find God's purpose for you in life. <laughs> and I said, thank you so much, and hung up. Uh, the second helpline, uh, 
was, was much more understanding, very empathetic, very lovely. I cried for 40 minutes trying to explain how dark things were and how I couldn't face the day. And then she asked me the inevitable question. She said, are, are you planning on taking your own life? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, well, unfortunately, we only provide services for suicidal people. And I said, I'm really sorry I wasted your time. I'll ring you once I slit my wrists. <laughs> and I still rang the third helpline. And they were just as sympathetic and lovely. And, you know, and they take, for anyone who's never done this before, <laughs> they take your, your information prior to, you know, they, your name, your address, where you live. And this is for, you know, GDPR certain purposes. Um, <laughs> But one of the things they ask you is what you do, and I explained what I do, because a lot of people don't understand what I do. And so she says, well, as a coach, wouldn't you apply the, you know, the advice you give to clients to yourself? And I said, okay, thank you, and I hung up. And however dark the world had been, it got only darker. The weight of my shame and the weight of my pride on top of it were toppling me, and I just felt like the world had shriveled down to the size of a raisin, and I just couldn't see the light anymore, and things were just getting worse, and I've just wasted an hour talking to anonymous people on the line, and I knew that the inevitable second step had to happen, so I picked up the phone again, but this time I went into my contacts, people who I wasn't anonymous to, people who knew me, who knew my face, who knew what I did, and I rang one of them. And she didn't say, get a hold of yourself, and she didn't say, count your blessings, and she didn't say, oh, you'll be grand in the morning, and she didn't say the dreaded, oh, you're such a strong woman, I'm sure you'll get through this. She said, look, go home, I'll meet you when you get there. And I drove home, and sure enough, sure, there she was. And she sat next to me on the sofa, and I cried and cried until there were no more tears left. And she told me what I had told a million clients before. She said, so if you take it one day at a time, Take it one hour at a time. Take it one breath at a time. I'll get easier. Now go to bed. And I went to bed. And I woke up in the morning, and things weren't unicorns and rainbows. But the shame was lighter. And my bruised pride knew better than to stand in my way again. And I have since learned how to deal with these episodes better, and I have since to a degree, got on top of it, sometimes I don't, but I know how to deal with it. But most importantly, I have since bought a new car. <laughs> Thank you. Sophie Musley, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome on the stage, round of applause for all our storytellers. To John Piggott, Kerry Ward, Claire Nevin, Gary Maloney, Mark Khan, Lolly Mancy O'Brien, Sam Ford, and Sophie Musley. I'll get out of the way so you can see them properly. For now, it is uh, my honor to announce that our winner is Kerry Ward, ladies and gentlemen. Do you want to say, do you want to say anything? Please don't Google my MasterChef episodes. <laughs> I don't want those views going up. Please don't do it. Um, Thank you all so much. I uh, did the story slam the first time in, uh, back in May on a whim. I didn't know until uh, halftime that I was going to tell a story, and uh, it just brought me a huge rush of like 
happiness and I mean I can't honestly say I wasn't confident before but if anything I'm more confident now I don't know if that's a good thing um, but yeah thank you all so much for being a wonderful audience and uh, hope to see you at the next Story Slam and thank you guys so much oh, thank you very warm well done and that my friends is the second half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam Championship 2018. A massive, epic, huge hug has to go out to Kerry Ward, who is the winner of our Grand Slam Championship for 2018. Kerry received a beautiful trophy that was set on a 5,000-year-old piece of bog oak with a little sheriff's badge to award her the title of Grand Slam Champion, where the theme was the good, the bad and the ugly. A huge congratulations also has to go out to all our wonderful storytellers, because the stories themselves only last around seven minutes when they're on stage. But the preparation and the consideration and the the hard work that goes into composing these stories uh, was considerably longer. So a huge thank you to all of our storytellers who shared stories on the night. Farah L was our musical timekeeper. If you have not heard of her music before, Google it. She is amazing. And of course, Darren Cummins uh, on sound. Ian Mulholland was our production assistant on the night. That is it for now. We will be back with one more episode to close off the year. And it is a very special Christmas episode. We've got some handpicked stories that we've been sitting on for the last 12 months nearly and we've been saving them up for the next podcast which is our Christmas end of year um, podcast so make sure to check your feeds out for this month thanks a million for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.